Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. All right, Barry Ritholtz joins us here. Barry is a founder of Ritholtz Wealth Management. He's a Bloomberg Opinion columnist and host of Masters of Business. And he has a fascinating new column out, which I just read, The 10 Most Useless Phrases in Finance. That's the good news. The bad news is I have been guilty of uttering all 10 of them. Barry Ritholtz, (laughs) where did you come up with this list? Because it hit me right between the eyes. So I I wrote a similar column a year ago, and I wanted to come up with a different run of terrible phrases, and I just keep a running tally of them. But to see if I was wildly off base, I went to Twitter and said, hey, what are your least favorite financial phrases? And I was shocked to get a thousand responses, <laughs> um, many of which I had already written down were, were uh, suggested by the, uh, the Twitterati. And, and it's pretty clear that there are a lot of pet peeves amongst financial types about phrases that they really, really despise. People are very enthusiastic about critiquing really dumb language. Yeah, but Barry, it's very, very important to not get complacent. As they say, don't get complacent. (laughs) Yeah. Tell me what that means. So I'm an investor. I have a portfolio. (laughs) What does not get complacent mean? Should I move to cash? Should I not move to cash? Uh, the the phrase that you always hear is actionable advice. What is actionable in that other than, hey, be on the lookout for something that might be dangerous, but shouldn't investors always be on the lookout for things that might be dangerous? The, that, that phrase is... Hey, hey, you know what? It's great in a, in a college graduation speech, but as an investment advice, it's kind of meaningless. <laughs> the easy money has been made. Boy, I've heard I've uttered that many times. Yeah, that that's classic hindsight bias. It's, <laughs> if only I knew then what I knew now. Think about how easy it is. Look, investing is never easy. It's always hard. It might look easy after the fact, but you know, hey, go back to March '09. If only you bought with both fists. Go back to March 23rd, 2020. You should have been a buyer. Well, you say that today, but when everybody was panicking in March. You know, it was much harder to pull the trigger then than it than it is now with uh, that we're up 70 percent higher since then. Barry, there's one that I have not a problem with. I mean, I'm fine with throwing it out and never using it again, but it's already in the price. Why is that such a PV phrase for people? I mean, you know, if you're talking about, say, I don't know, election uncertainty or key man risk or whatever it may be, what's wrong with saying, well, we think it's already priced in? Right. So we get to uncertainty later because that's another uh, peeve. But, you know, the the problem with it's in the price is that, as Eugene Fama has told us, yes, what is known is in the price, and that is reflected by the buys and sells of of traders. Uh, When you see a big move in a stock or a market, when the market is up 3% or down 3%, or like we saw the other day when when uh, Nicola was down, what was that, 20 25%? How do you say it's in the price? It's in the price is accurate, except when genuinely new information comes out, and that big surge or that big sell-off is how the it gets into the price. So you have to be careful 
everything that's known is more or less in the price. What's not in the price are the, is the genuine new information, the genuine surprises. So, Barry, if I look at cash in money market funds, in uninvested cash in pension funds, isn't it a fair statement to say cash is on the sidelines and that's perhaps a bullish call for stocks? So, Paul, you buy a, you buy a thousand shares of Apple from from me, and it costs you, you know, whatever whatever the total. I don't know where Apple is trading today, but I, you have cash, and you give it to me, and I have the stock, and I give it to you. So, the cash that was on your sideline is now on my sideline. <laughs> there is always, and I'm I'm choosing my words carefully here, trillions with a T, trillions of dollars in cash. In motion, it takes either one or three days, T plus one or T plus three, to a trade settlement. Uh, there's money in, in SMAs and separately managed accounts in prime brokerages. There is cash all over the place. There is always cash on the sidelines. And yet academia has never convincingly demonstrated that you could show when there's X amount of cash on the sidelines, markets do Y in the future, there's always cash on the sidelines. Every trade has a buyer and seller. Mm. Even with margin, even with borrowed money, it's still cash changing hands. So when is there not cash on the sidelines? Yeah, that, that's actually quite a brilliant and incisive point. Barry, what were the phrases that stuck out to you that were, you know, maybe some people don't like them, but you still find a lot of wisdom in them? Because I know you've done a lot of work as well on you know, cognitive and, and behavioral types of investing. So, so there's a handful of things that I find really fascinating. One is everybody wants to be a contrarian, which is kind of amazing because, by definition, contrarians are the people outside of the herd, outside of the crowd. But there's a certain romanticism to being that person who who makes makes the big short bet, who who or who buys when everybody else is selling. It's much harder to do. Then it appears that that always cracks me up. And then the simple truth, sort of the flip side to that, the simple truth of the trend is your friends. You know, crowds are mostly right. Markets get it right most of the time. It's only at extremes. You know, go to March 2000 when trees grow to the sky and, and we're not buying discounted cash flow, but clicks and eyeballs. Hey, the crowd was totally wrong there just as the crowd was wrong in in March of 2009, with the markets down 57% and people forecasting the end of the world, hey, at a certain point, um, you know, the trend is your friend, except for the bend at the end. Traders have (laughs) rhyming rhyming aphorisms for every circumstance. You need to write a, a, a picture book, Barry. Yeah. It, it, I, I think um, I, I think I should get a five-year-old to do it. Uh, they have the insight that very often we in a crowd miss. Barry, you don't miss much. I'll give it that. Who's on Masters in Business next? Uh, this week is Pedro Arp. He is the uh, chief marketing officer for AB InBev. They are a giant beer company with everybody from... Uh, Budweiser, Stella, uh, Michelob, go, Corona, go down the list of beers. They they are typically the largest beer um, well, producer and seller in every market. Looking in. forward to that. It should be an interesting conversation for pandemic times. Barry Rittles, thank you. Founder of Rittles Wealth Management, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and of course, host of Masters in Business. 
Well, it's time to turn to the market once again, and we're seeing continued improvement really for the indices after hitting that low right after the open. The Nasdaq is actually up eight tenths of a percent now. But for a bigger picture look at things, let's bring in Lisa Shallot. She's Chief Investment Officer for Wealth Management at Morgan Stanley. Lisa, what do you make of these these moves? We're seeing quite the bit of volatility, even though the VIX is below 30. But, you know, we, we hit the bottom today, and now we're you know, suddenly up more than half a percent in the S&P 500. Uh, yeah, so look, I, I'm in the camp that says we are definitely, you know, still in correction territory. Uh, I think we're getting a bounce today off of the phenomenal housing data, uh, you know, which is, you know, clearly a high point um, for the for the V-shaped recovery and, and for, you know, the overall economy and, and for the jobs market. Uh, but if you think about, you know, why these markets are in correction, I, I really think we've had uh, kind of a triple play here where, where we've had the simultaneous delay of the much-anticipated U.S. fiscal stimulus, which now looks like it may not happen until 2021. And, and I think from the jobs numbers we saw this morning, that could be problematic. Um, we had disappointing Fed guidance last week just in terms of, you know, the Fed not really providing um, any additional clarity on, on their tools or their policy or metrics around average inflation targeting. And last but not least, we just have these intensifying odds of a chaotic and contentious U.S. presidential election. And you put all that stuff together, and we're just going to have wider risk premiums in the short term. So uh, I'm not surprised that that we kind of touched, you know, correction territory in the S&P 500 this morning. Uh, I I think we may revisit this before. uh, So, Lisa, if in fact... Yeah, so Lisa, if in fact... You know, we're not going to get fiscal stimulus. Um, you know, the Fed has done pretty much the majority of what it can do to stimulate the economy. Does that suggest from a portfolio perspective that I just kind of focus my portfolio on what's worked, the proven tech growth winners? I don't try to rotate into some more cyclical names? Uh, I don't buy into that at all because what what uh, what we're seeing in the marketplace is because, to your point, uh, Fed guidance, um, you know, didn't really add to the debate. We're seeing uh, the Treasury market not really act as a diversifier anymore. Um, and, you know, while we've had markets down 10 percent, we've seen, you know, Treasuries trading in a super tight range on yields of, you know, 10 to 15 basis points, maybe. Uh, we've got move volatility at all time lows. Um, and so, uh, you know, if this is as low as rates get, uh, the valuation on my tech trade is vulnerable uh, because so much of my high PEs were premised on ever lower and lower and lower rates. And we're not getting lower rates. We're not getting higher rates, but we're not getting uh, lower rates. We're at zero. How much lower can they go? Exactly. And so, so you know, I'm not convinced that this idea of just, you know, go back, hide out in what works, which is certainly today's trade, uh, I don't know that that's really got got legs. Our advice to to clients in this environment is: look, in the short term, over the next two to three months, in these, this period of uncertainty, gold, tips, cash, uh, and then for for truly long term opportunistic buyers who like to buy dips, we're looking at at quality cyclicals, high yield credit. You know, some of the things that have come off a little bit here, but we that do. 
uh, are leveraged to, to a pro-cyclical rotation at some point. It's pretty interesting because gold has also lost about 100 bucks in the last couple of weeks. So yeah. I, I, I guess now would be the time to get in if you're going to get in, right, at 18.58 an ounce? I, I, I am. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's certainly what we're recommending to our clients. Yes. What are your clients most concerned about macro-wise? Is it the election and uncertainty that maybe might follow it? Uh, it is. Look, so, you know, as, as you know, portfolio strategists and, and investment officers, we typically, uh, you know, always take these, these periods of time around a presidential election to remind, you know, our clients of the facts and to remind them that, that typically it's not presidential elections that, that determine things. It's policy uh, and policy tends to be driven by the, the composition of Congress and things of that nature. Uh, at this time is different, and and what's different is this idea that somehow we're not going to have clarity on those issues. Um, you know, uh, and maybe that's for a month, and until December eighth, and, and and some are saying, you know, if this gets contested by a Supreme Court that has just recently, you know, been changed. Uh, you know, not until January. So this is different. And so what we're just saying is, look, we don't know what it means, but we know that this is a level of uncertainty uh, that does rot, widen risk premiums in the very short term. So this is very different than, than what we typically say, which is, hey, this, this doesn't matter. Try to look through it. Lisa Salat, thank you so much for joining us. Lisa is Chief Investment Officer, the Wealth Management Group at Morgan Stanley. They have about $2.5 trillion in assets under management. And uh, we always love chatting with Lisa to get her view of the market here. And uh, this time is different, Vani, I think, as we think about some of this election uncertainty that uh, I think a lot of investors are starting to really uh, get concerned with. Yeah, I mean, we'll have to see. The president doesn't help things by making comments on, on a daily basis, which you have to sift through and decide, you know, do I take this headline seriously? Do I take this headline seriously? And, uh, you know, if you have a lot of cash at stake, yep. you really want to be parsing that pretty carefully. Yeah, exactly right. And I think a lot of folks are saying, uh, let me just get a little bit conservative here. Gold tips, things like that as we head into the election and we'll recalibrate afterwards. Income inequality, wealth inequality is an issue that has been growing in stature for Americans uh, really uh, for many years now. Certainly the 2016 election became very important. Ben Steverman, personal finance editor at Bloomberg News, uh, joins us here. Uh, ben, really interesting story here. Harvard, uh, talking about economic carnage in the wealthiest zip codes. What did you find? So this is about Raj Chetty, who, as you see, he's been one of the driving forces behind the inequality conversation, because what he does, he's an economist at Harvard. He has a staff of about 40 people. Um, philanthropists have been really um, supporting him for years. And um, he uses these giant data sets of tax data and um, uh, census data that really track Americans um, individually over over t over time, and he studied inequality and race, and and um, uh, uh, he basically has diagnosed the American dream as dead because Americans now aren't earning as much as their parents do did, or their great grandparents. Um, and um, so, uh, what he's did when COVID hit was he kind of just stopped everything and he built an economics tracker using private data. 
uh, from companies like MasterCard and Tuit that really shows day by day, week by week, state by state, neighborhood by neighborhood. You can really see how the economy has been playing out and, and see what's happened with small businesses and consumer spending and job listings and all, all sorts of uh, metrics. It really shows the devastation that's happened over, since March. You can see it, by the way, at trackTheRecovery.org. And there's a button on there saying explore the data. And you can literally go into the smallest of neighborhoods and figure out who's been suffering the most and it turns out that his chart shows that by April the bottom quarter of wage earners so those making less than $27,000 a year had lost more than three times the number lost by the top quarter defined as those who earn more than 60000 annually it's it's pretty phenomenal how it shows income inequality what will be done with this Ben? Well, it's a really good question. I mean, as you mentioned that data, it basically shows the recession is over, or at least it ended in July for the the top 25% who are, and, and a lot of those people are just staying home and they're not spending money. And that is sort of been, I think it's clear from his data that that's been the driving force of, of the, the problem. It's not the, it's not the lockdowns. It's not the shutdowns ordered by the government governors. It's the fact that people who have means are not spending. They, they don't feel it's safe to go out and spend their money. And so what can be done? I, it, there's a lot of, of small policies we could we could be doing, and that's part of Chetty's work is, is to look at, you know, what could we do for the education system to help low-income people? What can we do for um, housing? Uh, but but I think the thing about this recession that's weird is that we're, we're conf- well-off people are confronted with it because it's the people we used to – interact with on a day-to-day basis. And I, I think he's hoping that that changes the conversation about this stuff going forward, that we put more effort into helping the bottom 50% or 75% of the population advance economically going forward. And that could be a range of policies. So Ben, is the concern, however, that this pandemic and the economic impacts could in fact not only widen the gap, but make it perhaps even more permanent? Is there a concern there? Absolutely. I mean, I think we've already seen the gap widen. Um, Up until, you know, up until July, um, that stimulus was really helping low-income workers. And in fact, a lot of them were making more than they had made before, uh, before they were working because of the unemployment benefits were so generous. But now that that's expired, and now that we have these major changes happening in the economy, automation, more online shopping, less in-person services, um, there's a real concern that first of all, this becomes a little bit more of a normal recession and the, 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 the economic damage really sp- starts to spread to new sectors. And secondly, that um, these, these, a lot of these people could be left behind for, for a generation here. We could, we could have a real permanent problem with some of these workers basically becoming outmoded. And again, you can see all of this data at trackTheRecovery.org. It is Raj Chetty's project at Harvard. And of course, he's got, you know, funding from hedge fund managers and so on as well. And it's in their interest to figure this stuff out, too, because, you know, there's a lot more concern over the social conditions of this country and what might actually happen if it gets worse, right? So there's 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 also you know an element to the richest wanting to solve this in some way. I mean, what does it say about the large inner cities in the biggest cities? I'm talking about San Francisco, for example, and Manhattan. 
So this is the thing. So we've been able to show, he's able to show that there was a, there was a substantial recovery in, in, in April and May as businesses opened back up. But if you look at those wealthy neighborhoods where wealthy people weren't spending, you, businesses were losing 70% of their revenue. And, and not only is that devastating for those businesses in the short term, a lot of those businesses have very high rents as well. So that's, that's, that's why you see all these businesses. If you look at the Upper East Side, if you look at Midtown Manhattan, if you look at um, wealthy parts of San Francisco, those are the worst hit neighborhoods in terms of the small businesses. And uh, the workers in those businesses are obviously coming in from other places. Um, it, it, a lot of them are low income, and um, you know now with unemployment expiring, they're really in a desperate situation. All right, I would urge everybody to try and find this story by Ben Steverman. It is called Harvard's Chetty, C-H-E-T-T-Y, finds economic carnage in wealthiest zip codes. But also do have a look at that data tracker, which is at trackTheRecovery.org. And also just generally, it's good to know about Raj Chetty's project there at Harvard University. Crazy market today, lots of volatility. Uh, with futures, equity futures, very low this morning. We opened up a little bit in the green, and now we're giving it back here. So we had a, just a kind of a strange morning here with volatility back and forth. Uh, you know, not much big movement, but again, some plus, some minus, some green, some red. Let's get a handle on what's going on in the markets. We welcome Sarah Poncek, Bloomberg Cross Asset Reporter. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us here. Kind of a strange day in terms of economic data as well. We had. Uh, the jobless claims came in uh, weaker than expected, uh, yet housing, very, very strong yet again. What do you make of it? Right. This has kind of been the story all along for COVID-19 and what it has caused in the economy. You look at the labor market, and sure, while we have seen immense improvement from March, still very, very downtrodden. And the pace of the pickup from here, it seemed as though the improvement in the labor market has topped out a bit. However, the housing market has just been booming. And we saw that once again this morning with the housing data. And as your prior guest, Lisa did say, we did see the markets turn around the same time that the housing data came out. But at the same time, we also saw it turn right as the S&P 500 was hitting its 100-day moving average, which is around 3,200. That's Mm. also just about the level that demarcates that 10% correction. So we do see some support levels swooping in, but the benchmark's just turning from green to red to green to red once again. Uh, Certainly a volatile morning. Yeah, I feel like our MLive team hardly has a chance to get a piece out when they have to sort of undo it because the last piece they wrote was about U.S. stocks finding their footing in the early going and recouping the loss. It really is pretty phenomenal. I mean, are retail investors driving this market in any way anymore? Look, these moves that we have seen are very quick. And there have been uh, some signs that the retail market is still very, very heavily involved. Sundial Capital Research, they compiled data from the OCC options data. And they actually found that last week, while we did see markets selling off, many short-term small options traders actually increased their bets on a market 
increase. So they're very much well involved. They're still pretty bullish on these markets, which makes some think that maybe the froth that was really built up in the month of August has not been completely shaved off. And you also just look at what's going on, the likes of Snowflake, for example, with its IPO. Uh, you had a stock yesterday, ticker SPI, uh, that announced that they were going to be an electrical vehicle company, and it absolutely just surged. And those are really the hallmarks of what retail traders do. Uh, if you look at some of these online forums, you'll see them discussing this. So we do still do see the footprints of retail very, very much in these markets. Sarah, interesting story on the Bloomberg uh, insiders selling stock at the fastest pace since 2012. I typically don't like to see those types of stories. It doesn't suggest a, a healthy upward bias in the market. It doesn't, and especially coming from corporate insiders. When you think about what is going to go forwards with a company, with their profits, with their revenues, uh, what the economy is going to look like going forwards. I mean, it's typically the insiders at these companies that have the best sense of what's going on at these companies. So when you see a sign like this, this data actually also came from Sundial Capital Research that corporate insiders are selling their own stock at a very fast pace. I mean, that doesn't give you a very encouraging tone uh, on the markets when those who lead these companies themselves are trying to get out and meanwhile getting out in the middle of a sell-off i mean we've really seen a yeah. sell-off this entire month and they haven't been buying the dip i mean in some ways it says more about the economy than their own companies right or than the market in general because they're obviously selling into the downturn in the market but perhaps it's because they've overextended themselves or who knows right who knows how how executive they shape their lives let's put it that way so Sarah what what about the SPAC story today that's also getting my attention this idea that there isn't enough transparency for investors in SPACs with the incentive process I mean investors in SPACs are they're they're pretty sophisticated no uh, not necessarily. You would think that some are, but SPACs have also been a very big area for retail investors. Retail investors have really been flocking to the likes of SPACs. I remember it was a couple months ago when we actually had the SPAC called SPAC. It was one of the most popular stocks or SPACs on Robinhood. Um, so whether or not you want to call them sophisticated, maybe not. Because when you think about a SPAC, you don't necessarily know what it's going to look like in the next couple of years. I mean, you're writing a blank check, essentially. So there could be some worries surrounding that. But I do want to highlight this morning, the one thing that really stands out to me, and something that's really been driving markets recently, is the real rates and inflation story. And that still holds today. For example, if you look at 10-year real yields, we actually see them ticking a little bit higher once again. We see inflation break-evens coming off once again. And that wraps into this story of if fiscal stimulus isn't Coming through. Uh, if we are worried about COVID once again, you have an upcoming election. What does that mean for growth? What does that mean for election? And maybe these inflationary bets that investors had placed just a month or two ago, maybe they went too far with that. Sarah Ponzak, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate that. Uh, Sarah Ponzak, cross-asset reporter, giving us thoughts on what's going on in the market. And again, Vani, you know, when you look at the equity markets, it is, has been a morning of, you know, not big moves per se in terms of percentages, but just kind of back and forth between red and green on the screen. I think the market's trying to get a sense of, you know, is it uh, the economy? Where are we in the economy as you take a look at some of that data that came out this morning? Yeah, and interestingly, the VIX is now above 30. So it seems like the VIX is, is reacting, obviously, to the volatility that 
that investors are, you know, uh, engaging in in this market it, it's going to be an interesting ride this afternoon the dollar index as well is above yep. 94 it's actually at 94 and a half full which is you know a phenomenal turnaround from earlier on in the week when we saw it below 93 so that's a pretty huge move Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.